You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. The Gaudium et Spes, which is kind of our document for the day, although I'm not going to go through Gaudium et Spes in the same way we've gone through other documents, kind of just like through it chronologically, but I'm going to kind of just dig into two little parts and then kind of pull out, uh, in many ways, what I think is the key to all of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, And today is the day we can't avoid it any longer. I'm going to read a few sections from my thesis. Uh, We can only stay away from it for so long. My thesis is on the Pastoral Council, a study of the language of Vatican II. And it's mainly a case study in Gaudium et Spes, but I, most of it was actually spent doing the sort of background to Vatican II, looking at different scholars and theologians who had a significant impact on the Council. The two movements that that played into the council, which I spoke to in that first session a little bit, the Resource Ma and Aggiornamento movements, which were both, you know, the Resource Ma movement looking back to the church fathers as to how to move forward, the Aggiornamento sort of like looking to synthesize church teaching with the modern world. So in that way, they're both, they're both played a huge role in the document we're talking about today, Gaudium et Spes, because they Gaudium et Spes is the document on how is the church going to speak to the modern world. Uh, and, and in the end, that is the change that came in Vatican II. But we're getting our head out of ourselves. Uh, we will get into that. Uh, first, I want to actually just tie up a few loose ends with, with uh, Lumen Gentium. Because... There's one thing that we didn't get to in talking about Lumen Gentium that actually is uh, really important for what we're going to talk about today in Gaudium et Spes, because it's talking about how the church ought to approach different cultures. And that's a huge question today. I mean, it's a, it's a politically charged question, because there's this interesting idea in our world today that cultures are are at their best when they're not influenced by anything outside of themselves. It's this idea that like anytime we bring the West anywhere, it makes that place significantly worse. Now, I'm not going to actually argue against that on the whole because the West is not the church. The West has a lot of things that it brings with it whenever it goes anywhere. Uh, And it's not necessarily good or honestly bad. It's just humanity in a different kind of brokenness than some other cultures. We have different struggles and different strengths. But the church and Christianity as a whole has been sort of lumped in with Western civilization. So there's this idea that like we ought not to bring that to different places because we're going to decimate their cultural heritage. Uh, I mean, talk to people like who think, who would say things like, Christianity destroyed the culture of the natives peoples. 
you know, destroy, destroy the cultures of indigenous peoples in North America and South America. That's just patently false. Uh, a lot of a lot that came along with Christianity. Well, actually, first of all, we made mistakes in a lot of those places, and I know more about some than others, uh, and I'm not. And that's not what I'm talking about today. It wasn't perfect by any means, but do do I believe that people being Christians is a good thing? Yes. Do I think that Christianity in any way destroys a culture? No. Uh, and that's and that's what. Lumen Gentium talks about that Christianity lifts up the best of what's in a, in a culture. It keeps and elevates all that is good and pushes out all that's not good. So in Christianity at its best, which has not always been the case, will always take what's best in a culture and elevate it, make it even more beautiful. And then, and then, sort of push out what isn't good because it doesn't align with the truth. I mean, we see that in. Uh, and I, all right, I think Christianity is truly unique in this sense. I don't think it's probably the best proof of Christianity, but it's one of the better ones. If you look at Islam throughout the world, you go anywhere, a mosque is a mosque. Uh, you know, there's there's very little sort of enculturation of Islam into other cultures. When you become Islam, you become Arabic. That's just the way it is. Partly because, and it's actually a necessity to a certain extent, because you have to learn Arabic to read the Quran. Wherever Islam goes, it brings Arabic culture with it. Mormonism's the same way. Wherever Mormonism goes, it brings America with it. It's an American religion at its core. It is the values of America made into a religion. And for better or for worse, wherever it goes, it brings America. Christianity is none of that. What is Christianity? We associate it with Europe, but it didn't even originate in Europe. It's a, it's a Middle Eastern religion at its core, but wherever it goes, it can adapt and become a part of that culture and take that culture and make the best out of it. So if you go to Mexico, you're going to get a very Mexican Christianity. If you go to Spain, you're going to get a very Spanish sp spirituality of uh, Christianity. If you go to Syria, you're going to get a very Syrian Christianity. Russia, Russian, Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the oldest churches. It is, if you go to an Eritrean Rite mass, you're going to feel like you're in Ethiopia. All right, so Christianity has, in a very beautiful way, been able to like dig into whatever culture it's in and then to sort of make its way in without destroying the culture itself. We're not sort of repackaging Western Europe and bringing it everywhere with us. Now, there were attempts to do that by certain Christians as they went out, by certain missionaries, and those always failed. Those were the attempts that failed. Where Christianity was at its best was when Jesuit missionaries went to Uruguay learned the Uruguay language, wrote a dictionary in that language, started schools to make kids literate, wrote an alphabet in that language, wrote an encyclopedia within two years of being in their culture, and then they started writing classical music in the style of the local people and making architecture that looked like the forest that they lived in. It was unbelievable what they would do. 
So anyways, that's the church uh, at its best. And that's the way we sort of operate within the world. We don't try to outsource any particular culture, but move in and in many ways sort of like purify and elevate all that's good about that place. Um, Because every culture has its wounds too. Um, And so that's why it's always been good, regardless of even sort of religious or non-religious interaction, that interaction between cultures has always been, in the end, good. Not, and not even necessarily good, but necessary. It's just the way it is. Uh, when we think of ancient cultures, we're probably not even, we're probably associating with them many of the things that aren't even original to them. So when we think about Roman culture, we probably think of, the, oh, the Pantheon and Roman columns and all those things. It's like, that's all Greek. Right? It's, they, they brought that all in uh, when they conquered Greece. And so anyways, uh, culture is not this sort of monolith that we tend to think it is today when we think of sort of post-colonial theory. But today's talk's not about post-colonial theory. Uh, maybe I'll give another talk someday on post-colonial theory, and uh, we can grapple with that. I mean, when it comes down to it, there's... Speaking of grappling, there is a whole series grappling with sort of colonialism that I think is coming up in a month or two, or maybe it's sometime in the spring, I don't know. Uh, but that's a, it's a worthwhile thing to look into. But that's, that's just one last thing I wanted to talk about with Lumen Gentium, and now we can move into Gaudium et Spes. And Before we do that, I wanted to pass out this document. So when we talk about what Vatican II did, uh, what what exactly happened in Vatican II? We have this we have this idea of of what a council does throughout history. That's a sort of early church idea, and that idea is like what what new teachings came out of that council. And because if we think of when we think of the church changing, we think of a new teaching being the cause of that change. And Vatican II, I would say, is unique in the sense that the teachings of Vatican II are not the things that changed the church. It wasn't actually anything new coming out in terms of the teachings of the church that changed the church. Uh, if we take a look at this is a this is a collection of all of the authoritative teaching of the Second Vatican Council. And by authoritative, I mean, it, these are phrases that employ the language necessary to make a teaching authoritative. So they come from an ecumenical council, which is, you know, the Second Vatican Council was an ecumenical council, and they speak with a particular authority, calling upon the authority of the church to uh, 
sort of declare this teaching. So they're authoritative declarations. Um, so the last one, which is on the second page, is from Gaudium et Spes. It says, with all this in mind, this holy synod adopts the condemnations of total war, which have already been uttered by recent popes, and declares every operation of war which aims indiscriminately at the destruction of whole cities or of widespread areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and humanity itself, which is to be firmly and unhesitantly condemned. So that's, that's the strong language required for something to be an authoritative teaching. So it's a, it's a declaration of condemnation on total war, which is actually a rather controversial thing, uh, probably one of the more controversial things the Second Vatican Council said, uh, in a time when most people were incredibly grateful for the bomb. Uh, and, and really, the whole operation in the Pacific was condemned in condemning that. Now, that's... It's kind of interesting for me. My grandpa would have been one of the would have been the one of the first pilots into Japan if we would have had to invade the mainland. So it gives I don't know. It's interesting. I wouldn't have been here. Uh, there's no way he was making it out of that. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't exist. But maybe in the mind of God. Uh, anyways, there's there's a list of these, and we can. Uh, it's not really worth going through them in the sense that none of them. Except perhaps, perhaps uh, the teaching on anti-Semitism. I don't know if that had been formally declared before, but I think it had been. Probably 12th or 13th century, around the time of of the. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things that doesn't really have to be declared. You, the church doesn't have to declare that we should love our Jewish brothers and sisters as our brothers and sisters because they're human beings. So in that sense, it's covered under other church teachings. Uh, there's nothing new in here is the point. And everything that's been that was declared in this council had already been declared in previous councils. So in that sense, how is it that if there was literally nothing new taught, how did the church change so much in the last 60 years? That's the question everyone has. And so some people will write multi-volume works saying something like, the Second Vatican Council didn't do anything uh, and you're like, well, obviously it did something. And then other people will write works that said Second Vatican Council changed everything. And you're like, well, obviously it didn't change everything because we're still Catholic and we still have the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is nothing new in that sense. Uh, it's not all completely different than the Baltimore Catechism, though it might be phrased slightly differently. So then what is the actual answer to that question? Because that's it. It's like, what changed? And to go into that, I want to first ask, if you had to guess how many people in the world, in the entire world, like what percentage of the world could read in 1900, what would you guess? Yeah, if you take the world population of 1900, what percentage of people can read? Can you say 20? Twenty is exactly well, not exactly right, but that's pretty much right. That's the number that I got. Nice work. Twenty uh, percent, and that's a, that's a pretty huge increase from 1800. Uh, from 1800 to 1900, it 
it actually kind of like escalated greatly, probably because of different plagues and, and I mean, and then influenza in 1900 that kind of knocked knocked us down a little bit. Uh, right around World War II, the Spanish flu. But then it wasn't really until post-war, the post-war world, which is really the globalized world, once the world becomes global after the Second World War, that people really start to ramp up reading. And so this is insane to think about. In 1900, 20% of the world could read. Today, 85% of the world can read. That is billions of people who have, like, it's a billion-fold increase from 1900 until now of people who can read. If you think about, in the whole history of the church, when we, when the Holy Father in Rome writes a document, any time between 300 A.D. and 1950, who is he writing that document to? Who is going to read that document? Bishops. Bishops are going to read that document. Maybe some priests. Uh, priests and theologians. So the people who are going to read it are, well, bishops, priests, theologians, professors, and maybe some ultra-educated catechists. Uh, and that's, that's practically it. Until 1600, it would have been handwritten because we didn't even have a printing press. So there was no way to even disseminate it on a large scale if we wanted to. So if you look at the history of documents of the church and you look and you say, what a, why is this so pithy? Why is it so canonical in the way that it's written? Why is it so dry and so almost dead feeling? Uh, if you look at any of the sort of creeds or canons that were written after councils, well, it's because they just needed the facts and words matter. Like the shortness of the documents mattered because it cost a lot to disseminate them. So there was a lot of practical reasons for that. But the main one being that the church in writing documents was writing to the priests. So then the, the Holy Father doesn't have to convince me of something. The, the document doesn't have to be, here's the hundred reasons why we're teaching this, uh, or here's why this makes sense. He just says, hey, here's your marching orders. Go out and tell people. Or like, here's your marching orders. Here's seven references. You can go and do the research on your own as to why the church is teaching this. Here's the holy, here's the church fathers who said this. Now go and go and like educate yourself on it, and then teach your people. That's that's what the holy father's saying throughout most of history. That all changes around Vatican II because when the church writes the documents of Vatican II, it is not speaking to bishops, priests, theologians, professors only. It's speaking to the whole world. So in the, the language of Vatican II is definitively different because the church is now talking to everyone. Now, that is, I would say, a very good and a very difficult thing to do. I'll tell you why. So, this is where I'm going to, unfortunately, make you listen to a part of my thesis. 
this is where I, I kind of, I'll talk about Gaudium et Spes for a second here, but uh, move into, actually, I'm going to skip that part. We'll, we'll just talk about, this is the my thesis, basically. Vatican II takes on a very different tenor from previous councils. It was a change in form, not content, that differentiated Second Vatican Council from all previous councils. The pastoral language of the council conveys a new hermeneutic, and in doing so, brought about a radical change in the church without a considerable development of doctrine. The council fathers' prudential judgment to adopt this approach brought about a renewed capacity for dialogue with the modern world on the level of the magisterium and the individual Christian, which was valuable and even necessary for effectively evangelizing modern man. Simultaneously, the same approach caused a lack of clarity, superfluous verbiage, and a redundant promulgation of church teachings for seemingly no reason. Fifty years later, the magisterium must now recover the stable language of previous centuries and integrate it with the pastoral approach of Vatican II, that it may preserve this capacity for real dialogue while recovering a precision, clarity, and modesty in teaching. So if I was able to just tell the Holy Father what I thought, that's what I would say. So what what I said there is, I guess, and I guess like the the beauty and the danger of Vatican II was the second you stop speaking in that ultra-specific, ultra-precise language of, of canon, you begin to open yourself up to misinterpretation. And I think you can see this in, say, like, I don't know, every time you open the news, every time Pope Francis goes on a plane, you know, and does an interview, it, there's suddenly an uproar for two weeks because everyone's like, Pope Francis said this, Pope Francis said this, Pope Francis said this, it's like, all right, guys, first of all, relax. Pope Francis talking on a plane. Let's just, let's just relax about that. It's not, it, it's, he's, it's not an encyclical letter. It's an interview on a plane. But at the same time, Pope Francis speaks in a very, he, he speaks as a pastor. He'd speak as like I would speak to someone if they asked me a question, which is he says what's on his mind, and he says a lot of things. And whenever someone says a lot of things, you can pick any one of those things out and make it into what you want it to be. When the church says, if you believe this, you're anathema. It's hard to misinterpret that. You can't. You either believe it or you don't, and you're either anathema or you're not. But when the church says, when the church speaks the way it does in Vatican II, you can say, oh, the church has basically changed its teaching on this. Uh, And you can do that with really any topic in those documents. But it's not not that the church did that. It's but, but... it's that the church refuses to speak in such dry, cold language anymore because everyone, well, everyone is theoretically reading it. Uh, not everyone has actually read the documents of Vatican II. Very few people have. But anyone can open them up and read them and be inspired by them in a very real way because uh, they're beautiful and and they're, they're moving in a way that previous documents were not. Uh, there's one other thing I want to look to, and this is actually where we'll dig in a little bit to Gaudium et Spes. OK. 
Okay. So this is <clears throat> this is where Ratzinger, soon to be uh, Benedict XVI. So Benedict XVI was a theologian and an advisor to Cardinal Frings, who was the one of the German cardinals in Vatican II. And he was, so he was a young theologian, very much on the forefront uh, of the of the age, uh, and actually like pushing the church forward in really interesting ways. Uh, but he was he was instrumental in drafting Gaudium et Spes as a document. So he said he said this, uh, and he said although although the document was a difficult one for people. You know, some people said this is a homily; it's not a it's not a document, and blah blah blah. But he said this: the church meets its vis-a-vis, sort of meets sort of like what it is in the human race. It cannot stand outside the human race, even for reasons of dialogue. This attitude can only be attributed to the deeply rooted extrinsicism of ecclesial thought, too long acquaintance with the church's exclusion from the general course of development, and to retreat into its little ecclesial world from which an attempt is then made to speak to the rest of the world. And this is, this is a huge temptation today as well. Has anyone here heard of the Benedict option? <clears throat> There's this idea that actually some people attribute it to Benedict XVI, which he was not for. Um, others, others speak of it in terms of like Benedict of Nursia, the founder of the Benedictines. And it's this idea that our culture and our human and our human society is collapsing. And the best solution to this is not to engage, because we're past engaging. Like the, the world just disagrees too fundamentally with the church on too many things. So what we need to do before we get eaten by it is pull back into sort of concrete Christian communities where we can actually survive together and let the world burn to the ground and then sort of go back afterward and rebuild it. Kind of like we did after the Roman Empire fell. I mean, that's an inaccurate way of looking at history in the first place, but... You could say that if it weren't for the monasteries, which were very concretely separated from the rest of Europe, European civilization, during the total collapse of society in many ways, you know, from 500 to 800, the monks really were the ones who preserved civilization by continuing to copy out all of the great works uh, that came before them. And in a really tough time when everyone was sacking everyone and, and uh, until really Charlemagne brought some sort of es- established society to Western Europe, the monks were the only thing going. Uh, and <clears throat> you could say that's maybe what they're looking at, but this is not the way the church wants to move forward. Uh, that's not, it's not the way any of our Holy Fathers have suggested moving forward. We have to engage with the world. We can't go about sort of Benedict Option style of of uh, evangelizing. 
first of all, because if you just abandon the world, then afterward, it's not like you're going to have a lot of credibility uh, in the eyes of everyone around you. Second, it's just not a realistic way to look at things. Um, but <coughs> the instead of that, Benedict speaks about the change, the necessary change being a change in form. And so the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties, the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys, hopes, griefs, and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. For theirs is a community composed of men, united in Christ, led in the Holy Spirit. By men, I mean humanity. Uh, their journey to the kingdom of their Father. They've welcomed the news of salvation, which is meant for every man. That is, why this community realizes it is truly linked to mankind and history by the deepest of bonds. That's why this sort of language is why people are like, this is a homily uh, <laughs> and not a church document. When we think of Gaudium et Spes, the issue... So there's, there's a beautiful document there, and it's speaking to the way in which the church must engage with the world with a new form. By new form, we mean... We can't, we can't speak with a language that's not real. In the same way that, I mean, in, in, I, in preaching homilies, I can't give a theological treatise, though that might be more precise and I might be sort of pumped about it. It's not going to touch the hearts of people. And so, in the same way, you can't, you can't, be perfectly just or totally merciful with your children all the time. Because if you're perfectly just, you'll probably make them hate you, and then it'll cease to be effective. If you're excessively merciful, it might actually bring about presumption and not be good for them in the long run. <clears throat> the church has to speak with a certain amount of imprecision in order to reach the hearts of humans. Uh, <clears throat> now, this is the main problem that I see with the way the church writes now, um, or the main struggle for me. I don't know if it's necessarily a problem, because it might be unavoidable. So, Pope Francis says something as a pastor. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, John Paul II did this all the time. I was just too young to remember it. Uh, he'd say something. Or he'd do something that was a very pastoral thing. Like he'd, you know, let's an imam give him a blessing. Uh, and so I remember, I don't remember it, I wasn't alive, I don't think, but JP2 did that. And, and people freak out on the ground. Some people say, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This means every religion is basically the same. And imam's blessings are the same as priestly blessings. Other people said, well, it's sacrilegious. Why would the Holy Father let, him, let an imam bless him? That's not even true. It's not even a true religion. This is 
Unbelievable. And so there's a little bit of chaos on the ground. Something beautiful and pastoral down up top. He wasn't saying either of those things. He's not saying the blessing of an imam is the same as, the, as a priest. He's not saying that uh, he's not committing sacrilege. Neither of those are true. Tons of people go to their parish priests and they say, Father, does this mean imam's blessings are the same as a priest's blessings? And the priest says, no, that's not, that's not, that's not true. Now, what has happened uh, is the church up top is pastoral. People see that. They form an opinion. They come to their priest, and their priest has to correct the thing that was misinterpreted. Now, the problem with that is, so someone comes to me. Pope Francis says something like, um, you know, same-sex couples are sons and daughters of the church. True. Absolutely. Absolutely true. Uh, someone comes to me and says, Pope Francis says this. Does this mean that the church is going to change its teaching on same-sex marriage? It does, doesn't it? And I say, no, it doesn't mean that. And then, they, and then the situation is actually worse than it was before. Do you understand what I'm saying there? So like, a, an, an imprecise thing was done up top, which was pastoral and good. Pope Francis needs, needs, should say that. Um, and because it wasn't exactly what the church taught, someone was able to receive that in their heart in a way that was imprecise. And they ended up actually thinking, thinking that the Pope said one thing when he didn't, because he didn't say it really precisely. And then they come to me, and they ask a really difficult question, and I have to give a two-sentence answer that is obviously going to be insufficient for the situation, and they end up despising the church because I have to be the one who lays down a difficult teaching in a difficult moment. Whereas... If Pope Francis says something incredibly, impeccably clear that makes someone angry, like the church is not going to change its teaching on same-sex marriage. Now, when someone hears that, they're going to be they're going to be angry. They might not even come and ask me about it, honestly. Uh, so that's the problem with it. But if they say they come to me and say, "Father, does the Catholic Church hate?" people with same-sex attraction? Does the, does the Catholic Church hate gay people? And I'd say, of course not. And we could have a great conversation. Do you, do you understand the difference there? So when the church is precise up top and says a difficult thing, people might be angry about it and they might misinterpret it, but they're going to bring it, hopefully, to their pastor and he's going to be able to actually give them a real pastoral answer. That's that's much closer to what the church teaching is. Whereas, if the church says something imprecise from the top, and someone receives it in a way that's inaccurate, and they bring it to their pastor on the ground, he now has to be the one who gives the difficult teaching of the church from and correct the imprecision. So I'd rather be, frankly, in the position of someone who gets to sort of take the hard teaching 
and bring it into the real life in a way that's, that's charitable than be the one who has to correct a misinterpretation of a te teaching that someone received in a way uh, that wasn't true in their hearts or that they misinterpreted. Does that make any sense? That's the problem that I see with the church teaching or speaking in a way that's imprecise. I also, the other problem is the sheer volume that we produce. It's just too much. I can't read all the documents that the church pumps out these days. Way too much. There's better books to read. I just am not going to read all the church documents. Uh, I mean, I should. I'm a priest. And here's the thing. If I'm not reading them all, I know no one else is reading them. There's just too many of them. Pope Francis alone has published something like 700 pages in his papacy. More than that, for sure. That's, that's just like post-synodal documents and encyclicals, 700 pages. Uh, JP2, 52, 54 encyclicals. That's not even considering apostolic exhortations or circular letters or post-synodal apples. I don't know. I don't even know what those ones are called. Uh, it's just too much. Uh, documents of Vatican II. Has anyone here re read the document Intermorifica? It's a document on technology, written in 1965. If you read it, you're probably one of less than a thousand people in the world who have ever read that document. No one reads that document at all, unless they're doing a PhD on Vatican II. I didn't even read it, and I did a master's thesis on it. I just admitted that in a recording. Uh, I skimmed it. It's not that long of a document. It takes like 10 minutes to skim. No, not at all. So that's the problem with writing a document on technology. <laughs> uh, well, there's some decent principles, but they've been repeated 50 times since then in other documents because that's what we do now. Has anyone... All right, you know the USCCB is about to have a meeting. And the biggest piece of news about this meeting is this document on what we call Eucharistic coherence, which is basically politicians who are pro-choice should they receive communion. That's the document. Now, it's not a policy because the USCCB can't put forth a policy. They don't have the authority to make a policy. That's not how conferences of bishops make, uh, do things. They don't have that authority. Only the bishop has authority on those things in his diocese. But they're going to write a document laying down principles for, you know, this is, this is a principle for how to deal with a situation in your diocese when you have a, an expressly, explicitly pro-choice politician who approaches for communion. These are, these are the principles you, know, you need to follow. <clears throat> it's 2021, and this document seems sort of imminent. We need this document. We need this document on Eucharistic coherence to bring clarity to this teaching. It's like, first of all, no, the teaching's clear. Second, the USCCB released a document on this exact issue in 2006. That's not even 20 years ago. We already have a document. Why do we need another document? Do we need another document? No. The last thing we need is another document. The amount of emotional energy and political energy that's gone into the discussion about this document is enormous. It's a complete and utter waste of intellectual energy and emotional energy, and like just providing sound bites for news. I don't know, anyways, I have strong feelings on the volume, 
of documents that we release in the church today. I think we should shut up for a little bit and just stop writing documents. We already have all the documents we're going to need for the next little bit. Now, there are certain new things from time to time, like gene editing or artificial intelligence. Should we talk about that maybe? Yeah. Uh, but we just don't need to keep writing documents on things that we already have clear teachings on. Just because the other document was 15 years old. I don't know. Just tweet a link to that one. You know, it's pretty clear. So that's, that's kind of, uh, I think what's at the root of that, or at least what's at the root of the desire for restating teachings over and over and over again is this idea that if you don't restate it all the time, then people are going to assume for some reason that it's changed. It's kind of like, uh, I mean, it's a cultural thing for us. It's sort of like, if you don't affirm your beliefs on particular topics over and over and over again in sort of some sort of public, public cultural way, then you're not then you, you haven't proven that you really stand for them. You haven't proven that you really believe that thing. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of culture of affirmation type of thing. But I don't think it's necessary. Uh, <clears throat> I think, we, I think we're, we've got plenty of clarity on those issues. So I guess that's... Uh, we've got 15 minutes. What... I don't know if, I don't know if I've gotten my... It almost seems like a meta thing. I was just talking to a couple before this uh, about this. That like, when you say the, the language changed and that changed everything that we see today. That's the change, the way the church operates in the world entirely. It almost seems like an impossible thing. So that, does everyone kind of understand what I'm getting at with it? Like, that the church speaks, the church has changed in the sense that it now speaks to everyone and that has good effects, which is that now I can go right to the source myself. It's not filtered through the hierarchy of the church before it gets to me. And I, and I can read an inspiring thing instead of just a dry canon. But that it also brings the danger of misinterpretation in multiple directions and can make being pastoral on the ground difficult. Uh, because I'm sure you've been approached by your friends like, does the church teach this? Um, and it's either like they're excited because they think the church might have changed their, a difficult teaching that they don't agree with, or they're angry because they think the church might have changed a difficult teaching that they happen to stand by uh, and, and that they happen to have like sacrificed friends for. Uh, you know, like, I mean, I've had, I've had two different situations, almost in the same week, where one couple came to me and said, did Pope Francis just say that divorced and remarried couples can receive communion now? Because they were like possibly excited about being able to receive communion. And I had to say, no, Pope Francis did not say that. And that was a really difficult conversation. I think we actually had some time to talk it through. And then within the same week, I had someone come to me and say, did Pope Francis just say that divorced and remarried couples could receive communion, both because that person had gone through, had basically had had 
a miserable childhood because one of their parents had cheated on another one and they'd gotten divorced and it was a total disaster. And, and then despite that, the, the person's single mom had raised them and had eventually, uh, and, and the whole time she had raised them, they went to church every single week and she had not received communion because she didn't want to go against church teaching. So sacrificed a huge, huge amount of sort of like, I mean, I think the grace was obviously there because it was an extremely heroic thing. But she had done that because she loved the church. And so he had seen that huge witness despite an abusive and terrible marriage and then thought that the church had just basically abandoned her in that sense. Like, so she made this huge sacrifice and now you just compromise on it. So I'd had the same conversation in two different directions, uh, both of which were very difficult because of lack of clarity. So that's the danger of it. Um, I just don't know if there's a solution to that. I think that's just something we're going to have to learn to do as Christians, is explain it, even in difficult situations. Um, maybe it's just because I'm a big fan of him, but I actually think Benedict managed to span that gap pretty perfectly. So what... And if you read anything released by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in, in his tenure, he writes usually something like a one to two page document. So a question will come in, you know, like, uh, can, can we, uh, you know, put together a right to bless animals, you know, whatever. Can we bless animals on the Feast of St. Francis? And he'll, he'll give like a two-page answer, something like, yes, we can bless animals, but it's not the same blessing that we give to people and we can't baptize them, blah, 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 whatever. Two-page document uh, <coughs> explaining sort of like the background to this question, why it matters, and then finally, boom, at the end of it, two-line canon. So like explanation, canon. So this is the actual teaching right here. And, you know, and those were my two pages of explanation. That, that's a possible solution. The problem with that is it's like clickbait, where everyone just skips to the two-page, or the two-line canon. You know, that's what, that's what would happen in the end. Uh, and then we'd be right back to where we started in 1200 when we were writing canons. People would only read the canon. They wouldn't read the theological explanation. Uh, and we'd be right back to the problem. It's pretty much what people did with those CDF documents, unless they love ben Benedict like I do and want to read every wrote word that he ever wrote. Um, so there's a conundrum there. And the church, I think, has chosen the better way in choosing pastoral language. Uh, I think it's going to bear fruit, though there's some certain, certainly some chaos uh, in the last 60 years. Uh, there's a great quote from I might have given this in the first the first uh, session but John Henry Newman said this after Vatican I his friend was all his breaking down, kind of losing faith he said, God will provide, we must recollect there's seldom been a council without great confusion after it 
whenever a major doctrine or dogma is defined, there will be upheaval. Um, after the Council of Nicaea, in about 360, which is 30 years after that council, which was, the council was entirely, the goal of that council was to get rid of Arianism, was to define the Trinity and so overcome the heresy of Arianism, which said that Jesus wasn't fully divine. There's a great quote from about 360 from St. Jerome, where he says, Today the world awoke and groaned to realize it was Arian. So 30 years after that council, Arianism had actually spread way further. There, that at one point, between the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, there were more Arian bishops, so there were more bishops who were legitimately heretics than there were who believed in the Trinity as we teach it today. That's insane to think about. Yet, in 385, Council of Constantinople, the truth prevailed, and the real teaching on the Trinity was reaffirmed, and Arianism was finally sort of overcome. 